Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be looking at a question about the future. A, a sort of Today will be a speculative outing. So the question that we want to start with today is the broad one, and then we'll we'll break it down into specifics, specific ways of looking at this question. The question is, how long could a technological civilization last? And notice I, I just use the word civilization and technological, not necessarily human civilization, since time and space scales, the kind we're talking about, could really blur the lines of what it means for a civilization to be human or consistently any one biological species. So for now, I'd, I'd say let's just define civilization as something like a continuous tradition of intelligent behavior. Uh, if you've got something like that, assume a civilization like ours leaves Earth and spreads out to colonize other star systems, and becomes a presence on the galactic stage, how long could a civilization like that actually survive into the future? Yeah, you kind of have to think of, of civilization as a virus yeah. spreading through this, uh, this galactic and ultimately, I guess, universal host. Uh, how, how far could it spread? How long could it maintain the infection? Um, and it's, it, it is challenging at times to, to think about it because we – we can't help but extrapolate what we have now and what we know. And we have to do that in order to, to sort of scale up the model of what uh, a galactic civilization might look like. Um, and at the, you know, because I think back to Star Trek, for instance, you know, Star Trek is essentially uh, a show about clipper ships. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about uh, seafaring individuals. It's just extrapolated into space and then, uh, you know, with a lot of uh, cool science. Uh, science and science fictional uh, elements uh, uh, explored within it. Yeah, uh, exploring the planets of potted plants. Yeah, but but ultimately it is it is based on the model of uh, the present and the past. Um, and then, then there's also this, this element too of just, um, you know, uh, uh, grandiose pride and in, uh, in human accomplishment to, mm -hmm. to wonder, well, where will we be uh, in this distant age? It, it reminds me of a, of a quote from uh, uh, J.M. Coetzee's uh, Waiting for the Barbarians in which he writes, quote, one thought alone preoccupies the submerged mind of empire, how not to end, how not to die, how to prolong its era. <laughs> Uh, I think that's quite true, though. I mean, the conception of empire that we have is so time limited. I mean, people who are trying to prolong the empires that we're used to thinking about, say, Coetzee probably has in mind something like the British Empire. Right. Um, that is an empire that even though it existed for a long period of time was on the scale of, you know, people's recognizable descendants. You know, you would be saying, I want to hand on my empire to my child or my grandchild or my great-grandchild. Do you, do you want to hand on your empire to something that is maybe not even recognizably the same species as you a million years down the road? Yeah, it kind of becomes a situation where one is, say, passing on a typewriter mm -hmm. or, <laughs> or some other piece of technology where you're like, this has been in our family for years. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, well, thanks. But it, it's, it is now obsolete. It is, it is kind of useless. It's, it's actually of more value perhaps now as a, a mere museum piece or mm -hmm. just as a metal to be recycled. That's true. I guess it also 
it sort of works out how you don't have to care about that thing that's a million years down the road, whether or not you think of that as your direct descendant or not, because you care about the next generation and that generation will always care about the next generation. Right. It's just an echo through uh, through time and space. Yeah. I I think one of the important things to keep in mind in all of this is just to what extent do things uh, scale up? You know, because we think about the empires and the, the technology we have today, and uh, I think as we, as we proceed through this discussion, uh, we'll be reminded time and time again that that uh, that human life, human empires, they don't really scale up when you start applying them to uh, even even at the interplanetary stage. Things begin to get a little difficult, but certainly when you get beyond uh, beyond that, when you talk about uh, an empire that spans solar systems or or, or manages to spread throughout an entire galaxy mm-hmm. and, and human life as well. There are challenges. Uh, uh, obviously, there are challenges when we think of of uh, what we have now. And even if you uh, achieve some sort of biological or digital immortality, um, it, it's it's difficult to put that in context. Yeah. Now, one of the first questions that uh, you might ask is, well, how long would it take? How long is it going to take for a galactic civilization to emerge? Okay, we got to get there before we can ask how long it will exist or survive, right? right? Yeah, and this is something that uh, science fiction and authors uh, often kind of hash out, depending on how into, you know, defining a timeline they are. Now, uh, in his book, Cosmos, Carl Sagan commented on the Drake Equation, Right. So the Drake equation, we, we've talked about it on the show before, but if you'll recall, it's essentially a, an equation put together to come up with a rough estimate based on some some variables where you can plug in your assumptions for the answers uh, to figure out how many technological civilizations you would expect to find in a galaxy. So basically, the, the short version is you take the number of planets that there could be life on and then multiply that by some probabilities like the fraction of planets where life emerges, the fraction of those where intelligent life evolves, the fraction that's capable of interstellar communication, and the years a civilization tends to remain detectable before, for whatever reason, uh, disappearing. Right, and Sagan pointed out that civilizations might tend to destroy themselves soon after reaching the technological phase, right. but that at least some civilizations might learn to live with high technology. He figured that using the Drake equation, if just 1% of all emergent technological civilizations survived this technological adolescence, then there could be millions of civilizations out there. Now, there don't appear to be millions of civilizations out there. Well, as far as we know. As far as we know. But, but here's the thing. Sagan and uh, William Newman calculated that if, a mil- that if a million years ago, a spacefaring civilization emerged 200 light years away from us and spread outward, survey ships would only just now be entering our solar system. And then what would that even look like? What would a million-year-old civilization, uh, you know, manifest as? Uh, I mean, our current and only model outside of sci-fi dreams is is our civilization. And it's, and it's a mere, you know, tens of thousands of years old. And we've only been a technological civilization for a few centuries. So what would these presumed immortals even be interested in when it comes to exploring and colonizing new worlds? Would they have would, – would they be interested in that at all? Uh, would they sort of – would they – perhaps give up on their colonization efforts uh, after they realize that they need to perhaps uh, extend their their energy in other directions? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think that it helps um, 
It helps when trying to imagine the future behavior of civilizations, whether alien or ours, to try to have as few assumptions baked in as possible. And so you can make assumptions maybe about what alien psychology might be like, what their their directives are in exploration. But all of those are, are somewhat fallible. One of the things I think we can bank on as an assumption about future civilizations is that they will need energy. Right. That that's that's a that's a kind of ground level assumption that just you can count on that. But then how how might their goals change? Like they have energy, they could have all the energy uh, certainly in a world, in a solar system, in in across multiple systems. But then what do they really want to do with it? And and indeed, do they want to survive the long-term challenges of life in our universe? Would their goals, understanding and even experience of time and space differ from what we humans value and experience today? Uh, it could be, but once you get into those scenarios, it's just hard to it, it's hard to predict anything with any confidence. Yeah, uh, I mean, so yeah, this is where you get into the really the, the domain of science fiction, right? Um, and, re- oh, and there's plenty of great oh, science yeah. fiction along these lines. Yeah, I'm reminded of the various advanced elder civilizations in Ian M. Banks' culture books. Mm-hmm. Um, because it, beyond the the high level involved civilizations uh, that engage with other galactic civilizations in these books, there are uh, what's known as the sublimed. The sublimed. Yeah, these are advanced civilizations that basically, at some point, they just left all of their their works behind uh, because they've left the known dimensions of space time behind to take up residence in several higher dimensions. Higher dimensions. Now, does this what assumes? String theory or something like that in which there are, there are tiny higher dimensions where you can somehow bake into your consciousness into some kind of substrate that can transcend into those hidden dimensions? Well, that's where my mind goes too, especially since we've, we've very recently uh, spoken about uh, dimensions and, and string theory. Uh-huh. Uh, now, I haven't, I haven't read some of uh, – at least one of the key books that deals with the sublimed in the, the culture uh, series. But it, it's basically the idea that, that suddenly the, the, this particular group has reached a level of technological and cultural advancement where they're not even playing the same game as we are. Mm-hmm. They, they are perhaps not even really experiencing the universe in the same way as we are, and they just kind of leave it behind. Uh, indeed, like, a, like, like, like something emerging from a chrysalis and, uh, and taking off into a new realm of being. Mm-hmm. And uh, But in doing this at the same time, it's possible that sublimation uh, might actually protect them from the truly long-term environmental risks of living in our universe. So maybe it accomplishes the same goal. Uh, but of course, that is, that is the benefit afforded by playing in the realm of imagination. We don't know if anything like that is possible or not. So let's uh, get into some of the, uh, the long-term environmental challenges of, of life in a hostile universe. Well, I guess first we should look just the planetary level. Yeah, let's start with with Earth itself, right? So there are a number of factors to consider here, the most obvious being threats from within and threats from beyond. So we certainly have the ability to drastically damage the life-sustaining properties of planet Earth. In fact, we are at, we are currently doing that. Yes. Yes, uh, uh, with uh, with say greenhouse gas emissions leading to global climate change, we are severely hampering the Earth's ability to sustain a civilization like ours far into the future. Yeah, the results can be ca- catastrophic. Now, could we actually wipe out all life on the planet if, if such an evil aim possessed us? Uh, I, I think we would probably have a hard time doing that. I mean, life is pretty resilient, mm-hmm. but we could come frighteningly close. 
I've seen uh, some estimates for how a large enough uh, nuclear war uh, could uh, could severely d- damage and wipe out a, you know a significant number of, of life forms on our planet. I also read, get this, uh, how even even an extremely powerful detonation in the Mariana Trench could collapse the food chain and wipe out most uh, plant and animal life. Hmm. Uh, specifically, and this is according to uh, uh, XKCD's Randall Monroe. Uh, uh, XKCD is a, a science blog and comic series uh, mm-hmm. online. Uh, he, according to his calculations, a 53 million megaton explosion uh, down in the trench might just do the trick. This would be equal to the Chicxulub impact that occurred roughly 66 million years ago, uh, which led to the Cretaceous uh, Paleogene extinction event. And that killed 75% of all animal uh, and plant species. It was the size of a city and it had the power of a billion nuclear bombs. And this brings us to the extinction events that can occur due to unchecked space collisions. Yeah. Now, there's, there's actually been some evidence to support the idea that there's a, a 26 million year cycle linking comet showers and global die-offs. Yeah, uh, the, there are people who posit all kinds of like, like periods of space impacts and what the causes of those might be. But one thing we can say is that space impacts are just a statistics game. I mean, mm-hmm. you're, it's just a waiting game. Like, you know – Every so many years, you're you're pretty much statistically guaranteed to get X number of powerful storms that hit a certain part of the right. world. Space impacts are the same way. There are a bunch of objects out there. They're flying around and you can just calculate it out. Over certain periods of time, statistically, you're going to be hit by X number of objects above a certain mass. So when you're t- we're talking about a human civilization – uh, surviving however many, you know, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years, certainly reaching like the million or two million year point. Mm-hmm. If you want life to continue uh, on Earth, then you have to do something about uh, potential impacts. Uh, because Planetary defense. Yeah, yeah you got to have planetary defense, which is something that uh, that – People are working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've discussed it on the show before. It's still not as as much of a priority as it should be. Yeah, you have all of these uh, these you know, politicians uh, out there, you know, making campaign promises and and talking about what they're going to do for uh, for for uh, to improve everyone's life. And it always floors me that this is not something that people take up because this is one of the this is perhaps the, the the only or at least one of the very few causes where you can say this is something we can do to save the world this right. is something we can do to protect the planet yeah what what if there that was like a <laughs> What if that was a a campaign platform? It was basically civilization level defense. So your your campaign platform is fight climate change, protect the planet from space object impacts, and let's say the other big one would be uh, prepare for the next super flu. Yeah. Uh, it makes sense to me. I mean, I guess the the the, the counter argument here is that most uh, the, these are these are generally longer term threats. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people are going to be less inclined to um, let it Im- uh, impact their voting behavior. Yeah, it's frustrating. But it, anyway, uh, uh, some other problems. Uh, that of course, uh, we, as we've discussed before, Venus offers an example of this of a sort of worst case runaway greenhouse effect that could leave a planet, even a planet like Earth, uninhabitable. And there are also various long-term scenarios involving the world's oceans, uh, the magnetosphere, uh, which if you listen to the show, you know that the magnetosphere plays uh, a vital role in protecting our planet from solar and cosmic radiation. Mm -hmm. And if something were to happen to that, then we are unprotected. There are also biological threats from within Earth's biosphere. 
That's right. Uh, you have to consider the likes of Peter Ward's Medea hypo- uh, hypothesis. Uh, I was actually not familiar with this. This is a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of an opposite uh, of the, the Gaia uh, hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, the, the Medea hypothesis is that multicellular life is a suicidal superorganism <laughs> leading to microbial-triggered mass extinctions. I mean, whether you buy the framing as a suicidal superorganism, it is clear that there have been times in the past where life on Earth caused massive extinctions of other types of life on Earth. I mean, we Mm -hmm. think about the oxygenation of our atmosphere that we're now adapted to was initially a tragedy that killed killed off tons of life. Right. And then, of course, we've seen this uh, this particular primate species rise up and uh, and, and alter the atmosphere from a very early time. Yeah. And then, of course, there are the outside context problems to consider, uh, which, of course, is a, a term that was coined by Ian M. Banks, but uh, has been uh, uh, used uh, since then by various other uh, um, authors and even scientists. Now, you call them outside context problems to consider, but sort of the nature of them means that, what, you can't consider them. Right, right. Uh, yeah, Banks said that an, an outside context problem is the sort of thing most civilizations encounter just once, in which they tend to in, encounter rather in the same way a sentence encounters a full stop. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, if we could, the, the classic example, of course, is um, if, if you have a primitive uh, terrestrial society and then uh, a colonial force shows up with advanced technology, mm-hmm. you know, and then to extrapolate that into space, an alien civilization shows up with it, with advanced technology. But of course, when we, the, the thing about the, the alien consideration is that a, a lot of very intelligent folks have thought about this problem. Yeah. There are even some rudimentary uh, plans in place uh, to deal with it when it occurs, you know, people who think about first contact. Yeah. So it's not really an, a completely outside context uh, problem. Yeah, you could look at a lot of science fiction as us doing our very best to use our imaginations to prepare for this potential conflict. Right. But one of the big hard limits for life on Earth uh, and in our solar system itself uh, concerns the life cycle of our sun. Now, maybe we should take a quick break and then come back to uh, to discuss and weep in anguish over the death of the sun. All right, we're back. So we, we've talked about the life cycle of, of the sun before on this show, but just to, to refresh, this is a basically how it, it, uh, it works. So our sun has been going strong for 4.5 billion years, and it has another 5 billion years left in the tank. When the core, That's roughly speaking, right? Roughly speaking, yeah. Now, when the core runs out of hydrogen fuel, it's going to contract under the weight of gravity. Some hydrogen fusion will occur in the upper layers at this point, but as the depleted core contracts, it heats up, and this heats the upper layers of the sun, causing them to expand. And as the outer layers expand, the radius of the sun will increase, and it will become a red giant. And the radius of, the, of a red giant sun, our red giant sun, uh, would be a hundred times what it is now. Like, that's not good. Yeah, that's, that's not good for anybody because this, uh, this would put, the, uh, uh, put the, 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 uh, the outside of the sun just beyond the Earth's orbit. And some scientists have estimated that this would just vaporize our planet, but there's also a good chance it would push Earth and its moon outward after consuming Mercury and Venus. In any case, whatever it does, it does not sound like a survivable ad- event for the inhabitants of Earth. That's right. It's just it's it's bad news. And long before this happens, say in a mere one to two billion years, the Earth is going to go hot enough to to boil away um, its oceans uh, as well. And if we're looking really long term, um, 
Here's how it'll uh, it'll all play out, according to uh, Ethan Siegel, who wrote uh, How Our Solar System Will End in the Far Future for Forbes. Uh, He says that in 9.5 billion years, the sun will collapse into a white dwarf and the remaining dead worlds will continue to orbit it. And eventually the white dwarf will go dark and the inevitable collision between it and another black dwarf will blast apart the remnants of our solar system. So all that and the sun doesn't even get to turn into a black hole? That's right. The the sun will never get to turn into a black hole. (laughs) It's not massive enough? Yeah. Uh, And yet it will wreak havoc nonetheless. So what's our fight or flight response here? Well, it obviously means if our civilization is going to survive into the the realm of, say, billions of years, if you're on the billions order of magnitude for the future, we can't stay here. That's right. We've got to build ships. We've got to build uh, colonies. We've got to establish colonies on other worlds and other systems as well. Or perhaps we do something to just move the Earth itself. Uh, Because as we ascend the Kardashev scale, such things do uh, theoretically become possible. Sure, at least in theory. For instance, we could harness comets and asteroids so they gravitationally slingshot past Earth and move us into a wider orbit away from the sun. We could build you know, planetary sunshades that have the same effect uh, or, 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 bury, or even just sort of turn the, uh, the Earth into a, a spaceship of sorts. Yeah. You know, just take it with us. Well, there are versions uh, – like for example, there is one idea that's not for moving planets so much as it is for moving stars. But I wonder if similar pl- principles could be applied to planets uh, where it's known as the Shkadov thruster. Yes. Have you read about mm-hmm. this? Yeah. The, the, so this is for stars. But what it would do would be it would be sort of a large reflective encasement for part of a star that would cause a positive radiation pressure in one direction uh, back against the star. And by reflecting all of this radiation back in the direction of the star, you could actually steer the movement of a star. One wonders if you could create some kind of similar solar sail-like thing for a planet. Then again, the planet is not emitting radiation the way a star is. So I, I don't know. Maybe maybe possible, maybe not. Yeah, or ultimately we could just leave it behind and yeah. move on to better worlds, make better worlds. Uh, Exodus from an uninhabitable Earth has been a sci-fi staple for decades, uh, going back at least to the 1930s. That's when British sci-fi author Olaf uh, Stapledon wrote about it. And uh, during the events of Frank Herbert's Dune, Old Earth is said to be uh, an uninhabited waste. Oh, yeah? Do they ever go there? Uh, I don't – not in the, uh, the the original books. They might have uh, something that takes place in the more recent uh, uh, Dune franchise books, but I have not read them. So mm-hmm. I would love to hear from uh, from hardcore Dune readers on that. Uh, now, when it comes to moving the planet, though, uh, we also see uh, some work there in science fiction. Sci-fi writer Stanley Schmidt explored it in 1976, and Ian M. Banks also wrote about it. So we're kind of uh, climbing a Kardashev scale of destruction here. So <laughs> planetary power and the ability to save one's planet in some sense. Uh-huh. Then solar system power and the ability to save oneself or roll with the changes uh, to a single star system. But what about beyond that? What about the fate of galaxies and the universe itself? Yeah, yeah. Th- that's a good question. I guess that's where we have to go next. Now, before we do that, we should pause for the reality check and and not ignore the much, much nearer, more salient threats 
facing our species right now. We mentioned some of those earlier, primarily things like climate change and all of its myriad downstream effects, uh, killer pandemics like the next super flu, the threat of space impacts, nuclear war. Maybe some people would throw artificial intelligence in there. I don't know. That seems like a much bigger question mark to me. Uh, But I think the big ones we really know to be concerned about based on the most solid science would be things like climate change and pandemics. We know those are real threats right now. We have to be fighting and preparing today if we want to thrive in the future. Uh, And of course, we've discussed those in the past and we will revisit them in the future. But to continue today's thought experiment, let's let's go that next step. So we imagine – Our technological behaviors can be changed and we beat back global climate change. We survive all these other threats in the near term. We expand our space exploration and colonization ability. We spread out our civilization so that no one local event in any individual solar system can bring it to an end. When do much bigger concerns like the space-time and energy dynamics of the larger universe start to actually become a threat to our survival? Well, not anytime soon. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but as but, far as we know. As far as we know. But there are predictions for how it might go down. Yeah. Uh, the sort of universal apocalypse. Uh, in fact, there are, there are at least uh, four main um, models here. Uh, we're going to start with the, the, the two older models. One is the big freeze. Uh, and this has to do with just a, an eternally expanding universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we know the universe is expanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the idea here is that everything expands to the point where there's just heat death across the universe, the triumph of entropy. And you're left with just a cold, dead universe according to some of the models. One thing that can often be misleading about the idea of the heat death of the universe is mm-hmm. that if, if you're not uh, familiar with this term, it sounds like that might be hot. It's no. not hot. It's the opposite. It, yeah. means, it means usable energy gets converted into heat, which is entropy energy you can't use and everything is just this cold bath of slightly above absolute zero radiation. Now, the uh, the other side of that, of course, is the idea that, uh, that what if things expand to the point and then they, re- they, they retract uh, the, the, in a collapsing uh, uh, mechanism. Uh, this, was, uh, this would lead to what is uh, considered the big crunch. So the universe stops expanding, crunches back down over time uh, into the reverse of the Big Bang. That doesn't sound good for you no but yeah th- but this would be uh, this would be a hot death as a cold to a, as opposed to a cold death uh-huh now back in 1979 uh, physicist freeman dyson dyson is still with us uh, as of this recording he was born in 1923 uh, but he <laughs> pondered just how these two possibilities would impact humanity mm-hmm. or whatever humanity becomes over the course of time and he was he was pretty optimistic yeah uh, we should note that this paper we're going to be talking about is fantastically readable, but Dyson was working with the knowledge available to him at the time in 1979. So, for example, this predates the discoveries that seem to indicate that the expansion of the universe is accelerating. Dyson Dyson didn't know that at the time. At the time, he wrote, quote, the prevailing view holds the future of open and closed universes, this being the idea that uh, a closed universe is one that will eventually uh, collapse into mm-hmm. the big crunch and an open universe is one that will just continue to expand toward this uh, big freeze. Yeah. He said, uh, 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 quote, the future of open and closed universes uh, to be equally dismal. According to this view, we have only the choice of being fried in a closed universe or frozen in an open one. <laughs> 
and he can he goes on. Regrettably, I have to concur with Ree's verdict that in the ca- in this case we have no escape from frying. No matter how deep we burrow into the earth to shield ourselves from the ever increasing fury of the blue shifted background radiation, we can only postpone by a few million years our miserable end. Oh wow! I was just thinking. So the blue shifting of radiation means that. If radiation sources are accelerating toward you, the radiation they emit gets upped in frequency. It gets blue shifted up higher. So does that mean like radio waves, the cosmic microwave background radiation and all that as it closes in towards you gets blue shifted up and turned into gamma rays? <laughs> I guess something like that, I yeah, guess. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what I'm getting from this. Uh, but this is with the closed universe model. Right. And and he's, he largely avoids the quote-unquote claustrophobic nature of the closed universe in this paper. But he does offer this uh, this idea. He says, supposing that we discover the universe to be naturally closed and doomed to collapse, is it conceivable that by intelligent intervention, converting matter into radiation and causing energy to flow purposefully on a cosmic scale, we could break open a closed universe and change the topology of space-time so that only a part of it would collapse and another part of it would expand forever? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I would call that optimistic. Yeah, but, but I mean, he's he's basically throwing it out here and saying, look, I'm, I'm not sure how this would work exactly. Mm-hmm. But if we're talking about a significantly advanced civilization, mm-hmm. this this sounds like the kind of thing uh, such a civilization would be into doing and maybe, maybe have the ability to, to do it. Yeah. Uh, w- one thing I like about Dyson's attitude here is that he, he he's essentially saying, you know, physicists – you should explore extreme implications. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he starts off his paper by talking about Steven Weinberg, uh, the Steven Weinberg quote, that the problem with physicists is not that they take their theories too seriously, but th- that they don't take them seriously enough. Mm-hmm. You know, that they scoff at some of the uh, – at discussing some of the more outlandish implications of theories that we know to be good theories and are confirmed by evidence. Uh, and Dyson's like, no, let's get into the weirdness. Wh- OK, we've got a theory. We think it's a good theory because it predicts all the stuff we see. What does it imply? What are the weirdest things it implies? Again, this paper is uh, is really readable, uh, mm-hmm. very accessible, especially for a, a paper that has so many um, equations in it. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but he also has some, some very helpful um, timetable scales. Uh, for instance, he has this table one summary of time scales. And he, he holds that in a closed universe, you'd have a total duration for the universe of 10 to the 11th power years or 100 billion years. And, uh, and then when he looks at the open universe, he basically takes it by, uh, by order of magnitude. So he t- this is what he says, quote, It takes about 10 to the 6 or 1 million years to evolve a new species, 10 to the 7th power or 10 million years to evolve a genus, 10 to the 8th power or 100 million years to evolve a class, 10 to the 9th power or 1 billion years to evolve a phylum, and less than 10 to the 10th power years or 10 billion years to evolve all the way from the primeval slime to Homo sapiens. I'm not sure if his uh, taxonomic organization of, of timescales of evolution is exactly right. But, I mean, he, he's working essentially with orders of magnitude. Yeah, he is so, definitely rounding up. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, for example, he says, you know, less than 10 billion years. I guess that's actually – that's a fair number to work with if you're just trying to estimate galactic evolution. Right, because you're ultimately trying you're, – you're dealing with, with life and life on Earth, which is just a, a, a pin drop – in the in, in in terms of cosmic history, mm. but you're you're so you have to work with these ex- exceedingly large uh, orders of magnitude, right? Uh, but but playing with rough orders of magnitude gives you more 
essentially more room to play around. So life on Earth has not been around for 10 billion years, but it's been around for more than 1 billion years. So you can essentially just round up or down to the nearest order of magnitude. Now, ultimately, for an open universe scenario, um, he, he, he does say that he does think it's pretty hopeful. He says, quote, so far as we can imagine into the future, things continue to happen in the open cosmology. History has no end. <laughs> And his uh, in this paper, his basic breakdown in this paper is that uh, if consciousness is not bound to biology, if it is structural, mm-hmm. then we can move beyond the body. Right. We can become uh, digital machines. We can become, uh, you know, black clouds of particles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that intelligence doesn't necessarily have to be confined to flesh beings anymore. And he, he had, there's also an interesting point in this where he talks about uh, immortal computing, hmm. which I hadn't really thought about. He says. Quote, a society with finite material resources can never build a digital memory beyond a certain finite capacity. Therefore, digital memory cannot be adequate to the needs of a life form planning to survive indefinitely. Fortunately, there is no limit in principle to the capacity of an analog memory built out of a fixed number of components in an expanding universe. For example, a physical quantity such as the angle between two stars in the sky can be used as an analog memory unit. The capacity of this memory unit is equal to the number of significant binary digits to which the angle can be measured. As the universe expands and the stars recede, the number of significant digits in this angle will increase logarithmically with time. Measurements of atomic frequencies and energy levels can also, in principle, be measured with a number of significant figures proportional to, and then he uh, refers to an equation, log T. Therefore, an immortal civilization should ultimately find ways to code its archives in an analog memory with capacity growing like log T. Such a memory will put severe constraints on the rate of acquisition of permanent new knowledge, but at least it does not forbid it altogether. Whoa. So I love that because he's he's really thinking big about uh, about how even you know memory and recorded history would work with uh, a civilization that is this far advanced beyond what we have now. Again, what we have now does not scale up well. So ultimately, Dyson is taking a very optimistic view of the ways that intelligent civilization could adapt to the the changing physical environment of the universe at large. Right. But again, this was this was 1979. Yeah, uh, we've had some uh, some some changes since then, and in fact, um, BBC writer Adam Becker reached out to Dyson in 2015 um, um, on the the matter of, uh, of of the expansion in our universe uh, seeming to accelerate. Right, which which puts a new spin on everything that we've discussed the, thus far. And uh, and so he reached out to Dyson, and Dyson said that he's he's far less optimistic, and that the most optimistic view is that perhaps the acceleration will slow down on its own. <laughs> because he, he points out we, we don't know what's accelerating it, so it's still possible that it could stop um, or slow down. Uh, otherwise, uh, he says, our descendants will lose touch with most galaxies, drastically limiting the available energy that he's discussing in these models. And that sets us up in a pretty key way to talk about one of the papers we wanted to discuss today, uh, a new paper from the physicist Dan Hooper. But uh, first, Robert, did you want to mention a couple of other hypothesized ways that the universe could end? Yeah, yeah. We'll throw these out here. Uh, The first one is 
the big change. <laughs> this is a, in, in this, uh, a bubble of new lower temperature vacuum emerges in our own universe and expands at the speed of light, converting everything in our universe. As Adam Becker wrote in that BBC, in his BBC article, how will the universe end and could anything survive? Um, Quote, the properties of fundamental particles like electrons and quarks could be entirely different inside the bubble, radically rewriting the rules of chemistry and perhaps preventing atoms from forming. Plus, uh, dark energy inside the bubble might behave in a different manner, perhaps causing collapse rather than expansion. So um, this, this sounds like a very uh, problematic scenario if it were to come to pass. It almost is Lovecraftian in its uh, in its uh, scope, right? The yeah. idea that suddenly here is a an emergence of uh, a part of our space that uh, is not bound by the same rules. Yeah, it, it's nice laws of physics you got there. Be a shame if something happened to them. <laughs> now uh, another uh, another uh, uh, apocalyptic uh, uh, scenario for the universe is the Big Rip. And uh, this one uh, was presented by Robert Caldwell of Dartmouth College uh, in 2003 uh, based on the idea of phantom dark energy in which the intensity of dark energy increases as the universe expands. So it's uh, the, uh, the density of, of dark energy right now, as we understand it, is pretty low. But if it builds up, it would rip the universe to shreds. So maybe overcoming the other forces. Like right now we see dark energy increasing the distance between the galaxies mm -hmm. uh, out there. But things that are gravitationally bound to each other or, say, bound by the nuclear force that holds atoms together, uh, that stuff is pretty safe from dark energy. If dark energy said, no, I'm going to overcome your gravity, overcome your nuclear force, that would be a problem. Yeah, this is, this is how Caldwell uh, described it in his, uh, in his presentation. Quote, the positive phantom energy density becomes infinite in finite time, overcoming all other forms of matter, such as that of gravitational repulsion, rapidly bringing our brief epoch of cosmic structure to a close. The phantom energy rips apart the Milky Way, solar system, Earth, and ultimately the molecules, atoms, nuclei, and nucleons of which we are composed before the death of the universe in a big rip. <laughs> Who gives a rip? <laughs> so, so that sounds, uh, that sounds uh, terrifying as well. And on that note, uh, let's take one more quick break, and then we'll return to the discussion. All right, we're back. Okay, so what spurred this whole conversation was that uh, we wanted to talk about a highly speculative but very fun paper uh, that just was just published online by the physicist Dan Hooper in which Hooper tries to imagine and scientifically characterize a survival strategy for a galactic civilization that sees the writing on the wall about the long-term fate of the universe and decides it wants to survive as long as possible. Uh, because it turns out if you are a galactic civilization, you don't need to wait until the cold death of the entire universe to have a problem. You just have to discover that usable energy is becoming scarce where you live. Mm. Hooper's paper is called Life Versus Dark Energy, How an Advanced Civilization Could Resist the Accelerating Expansion of the Universe. Uh, and we should point out that this has not been published in a peer-reviewed journal yet or anything. This is just something he put out uh, on the internet ahead of publication so people could comment on it and talk about it. I think it may eventually come out in uh, the Journal of Cosmology and Astroparticle Physics, but uh, we'll pay attention there. But as always, with anything that hasn't been, uh, been put through peer review yet, grain of salt. 
So who is Dan Hooper? He is an associate professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago, and he's a senior scientist and the head of the theoretical astrophysics group at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory. And a lot of his work focuses on the intersection between particle physics and the evolution of the universe at large. So he's interested on where the, the biggest stuff we know about and the smallest stuff we know about affect one another. So what's what's Hooper's argument about uh, the future survival of a galactic civilization? Well, he turns his attention to dark energy, what we've just been talking about. So on the scale of the universe at large, not necessarily in our own local neighborhood, but averaged across the entire observable sky, we've discovered that the energy that dominates the vacuum of space is not gravity, not electromagnetism, not any of the normal forces that govern our lives and our solar system, but a poorly understood form of energy that we call dark energy, which drives the expansion of the universe. Uh, So mass and gravitation attract objects to one another. Dark energy drives them apart. It's the energy that causes the space between galaxies to spread, meaning that the whole universe is growing larger and all the stuff within it is growing farther apart, and the galaxies farthest away from us are receding from us the fastest. So as far as we know right now, dark energy might not have any practical applications for life bound to planet Earth, outside of scientific research, that is. But then again, we should know better than to dismiss the usefulness of any scientific discovery ahead of time. Uh, I'm always reminded of the English physicist who is uh, credited as one of the discoverers of the electron, J.J. Thompson, who originally thought that the electron, which he was calling the corpuscles, Mm -hmm. uh, he thought this particle he had discovered would not be very useful outside of the lab. He had no idea it had anything to do with electricity. But Hooper points out how once a civilization expands to a certain scale and its energy needs scale with that expansion, dark energy becomes a pressing concern for the future of that civilization. And this is because dark energy presents us a future of an encroaching cosmic horizon. Mm. So we are unable to interact with anything beyond what's known as our cosmic horizon. This is the distance beyond which it is impossible to see because light from beyond this distance will never have time to reach us. Beyond that distance, everything is causally cut off from us. We can't see it. We can't talk to it or travel to it. Uh, You can think about it this way with an analogy. Imagine the the city or the neighborhood you live in is expanding. Are you there, Robert? Uh, Yeah, I'm there. It seems to be the case, actually. (laughs) No, 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 no. What you're thinking of is the increasing density of the city Mm -hmm. you live in. More stuff is filling it. But instead, you actually need to think of exactly the opposite. The distance between your house and other buildings is steadily increasing at an accelerating rate. So at normal walking speed, you say used to be able to walk to the post office or the grocery store and then back to your house in what, half an hour, something like that? Yeah. But as the distance between your house and these locations expands, the trip starts to take 45 minutes, then an hour, then longer and longer at normal walking speed. Now, you could try to walk faster, you could run, ride a bike, drive a car, and this would help, but eventually, as the space between the locations keeps expanding faster and faster, even these more powerful vehicles and methods of travel will take longer and longer to get you between locations until eventually you reach a point where no vehicle you can get can make the trip 
because the distance between the two points expands faster than you can travel. You could travel toward the grocery store at maximum speed for the rest of your life and never get there. And this would mean that the grocery store has crossed beyond your cosmic horizon from your house. Uh, so now, beyond the cosmic horizon of the real universe, there might be lots of other stuff. We can only see to our cosmic horizon, and beyond that, it's possible there are other galaxies, stars, planets. But because the interaction, our ability to interact with all that stuff is cut off by the speed of light, we will never be able to touch it. We can't land on those planets. We can't send messages to those civilizations or get messages from them. We're just cut off by the universal speed limit of the speed of light in a vacuum. So, for instance, if you had this vast galaxy-spanning uh, uh, empire mm -hmm. uh, where everything everything's kind of compartmentalized. You have all these different divisions of the empire, and maybe they're, they're not even in direct communication anymore. They just kind of have periodic updates about what culture and life is like in mm -hmm. the, these distant places. But eventually you reach the point where they're just too far away from each other for there to ever be contact again. Well, it would depend on how far away from each other they are because if they're within a galaxy mm -hmm. or even within – nearby galaxies within what's known as the local group. The local group is a cluster of roughly 50-something nearby galaxies that will probably one day merge into the same big old clump. Mm -hmm. uh, the local group is gravitationally bound. So we're going to pretty much stick together with the other stuff in the local group. So it's the but, galaxies far, far away we have to worry about. Right. So if, if, for instance, if Star Wars films were actually made in a galaxy far, far away yeah. beyond the local group, and they have to be shipped back to us. Right. There would reach a point where we could receive no more new Star Wars films. It would be a tragedy, wouldn't it? That's why we're stockpiling them now. We're getting as many right. per year as possible because eventually uh, it's going to pass beyond the cosmic horizon. Oh, no, wait. I don't want to be misinterpreted because I know there are actually people who, like, hate The Last Jedi. I no, am I, not one of those people. I liked it. It was fun. Yeah, yeah. I liked it too. Um, but, yeah, I've seen this all over the internet. People are like, People are, like, pulling their hair out about how much they hate it. I don't understand. Yeah. I mean, they're talking about making a Boba Fett movie. Like, do not disappoint, <laughs> uh, like, five-year-old Robert Lamb and, 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 and ruin the possibility of a Boba Fett movie for him because I know that, that he really wants to see it. Now, we'll come back to the cosmic horizon and the universal speed limit in just a minute. But uh, to, to shift our attention to another issue – it's often supposed that far, far future civilization can keep itself alive and create usable energy by harvesting the energy from stars. And this is a good strategy. We, we often think about future energy sources. We think about what? Like, uh, oh, cold fusion or something like mm -hmm. that. But these are – paltry energy sources, any kind of like human-made reactor that we can, can feasibly think of right now would be a very paltry energy source compared to what's already out there, which is the sun. Right. That, I mean, that is the energy source for everything that yeah. we hold dear. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a reason that we, we, we've worshipped it as a god in, in previous ages because it, it essentially is the almighty yeah. in our solar system. It, it is our creator. It is everything. You know, I mean, it is... A thing I used to say that I haven't thought of in a while but I still stand by is that when you think about energy sources, really it's – with a few caveats, it's all solar. Yeah. Like if you're eating a steak mm -hmm. or, a, or a Caesar salad, what have you, you are eating uh, converted sunlight. Yeah. Like this is sunlight you are eating. That's where the energy came from. It's just you're getting it downstream. 
coal or oil or something like that that you would burn, fossil fuels that you burn, have chemical energy baked into them that was created when ancient organisms photosynthesized with the with the energy of sunlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took carbon out of the air, used the energy from sunlight to make that into sugar that turned into chemicals later down the road that you're now burning to power your car. Yeah, and this is why Kardashev scale level two is to simply master a sun, to say all this energy that is, uh, that's maintaining the solar system, this is now all mine. Right. Uh, and so how would you do that? I mean, to come back to Freeman Dyson, we've discussed on the show before the idea of the Dyson sphere. Mm-hmm. The Dyson sphere comes to us from Freeman Dyson and he, he basically says, you know – uh, a, a civilization in the future that has a lot of technological power and wants to get the most bang for its buck will just completely surround its star with the equivalent of solar panels. Right. And it, this brings me back to Star Trek because I, I earlier I was talking about Star Trek and, you know, scaling up of our current models of life and all. Uh, I do have to point out that Star Trek The Next Generation is the first place I, I – saw any mention or depiction of a Dyson sphere. Yeah. And uh, it, it it blew me away then and it still blows me away now. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fantastic to think about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the ways that it's actually relevant to us, I mean, obviously it could be relevant in the far future if we wanted to try to build something like this. It's not technologically relevant to us today except in the sense that if we're doing, say, SETI – Mm-hmm. And we want to look for ways of detecting alien civilizations out there that maybe aren't beaming us radio signals on purpose or anything like that. One thing that Dyson proposed is, hey, you know, we could look for Dyson spheres out there. I don't think he called them Dyson spheres. Well, they, I don't they know have if several he did divisions, right? There's, there's Dyson spheres, Dyson clouds. But yeah, I, yeah, I don't know. To, I'm not sure to what extent he referred to them with his own name. <laughs> Somehow I doubt it. I don't remember. But uh, uh, if he did, that kind of be awesome. <laughs> Anyway, no, but I mean, he, he was like, you know, you could look for this kind of thing. And so people people have looked for this kind of thing. It would have a certain kind of signature. One of the things that we could observe about a Dyson sphere is that if it completely surrounded a star and turned all of the star's solar radiation into usable energy that could be used by the civilization somehow to survive, after all that, it would have to have a waste product, which would be heat which we would be able to see as infrared radiation, like submillimeter infrared radiation. And so if you see like darkened stars out there that are not producing any kind of light you can see but are producing infrared radiation and the certain kind of uh, – with a certain kind of band, you got to wonder like, hmm, is this just a giant hot ball that's taking everything a sun's got, using it, and then spitting some heat into space? Mm-hmm. Now, because suns and stars are already plentiful and they're already a great source of energy, I think it is a fairly safe assumption to think that if there is a galactic civilization anywhere, it will try to make use of something like a Dyson sphere. Maybe not exactly the original design, but it will try to use stars as an energy source to sustain the civilization and feed its people and power its machines and do all that kind of stuff. Right, and they're going to need more than one. Yeah. And as the civilization scales up, it'll need more and more. Energy needs scale up with population increasing. So what if your galaxy runs short on stars? You've got them all sphered up, Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, all the usable ones, and you're getting all the energy you need from them, but your population's still growing. What do you do then? Yeah, I mean, you're essentially using all of your farmland here to produce the crops that are necessary for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the the model of life that you've built. And uh, yeah, what, what do you do when you maxed out? 
And then what do you do when, say, one of the stars blinks out on you? Uh, you you're going to have to scale back on what you can do as an empire. Stars also have finite lifespans. Yeah. You eventually are going to need new stars to replace the old ones that are that are running down their fuel. Now, one thing you could do is just continually keep expanding, right? You could expand other galaxies. I mean, this is this is very crazy and very far future because we don't have anything like the ability to travel to another galaxy today. Mm-hmm. But if you imagine one of these Kardashev three type civilizations that has mastered an entire galaxy, it could spread to other galaxies. It could keep on expanding. But we're limited to our local group right now because if you imagine just trying to continue expanding to other galaxies beyond into the far future, you would eventually come up against the problem we were mentioning earlier, the cosmological horizon problem. That's right because even if you imagine – and at least this is what I'm imagining – is that, you know, just cosmic marauders. Uh, and this is something that um, – as Hawking has has touched on himself, mm-hmm. uh, and to a certain extent, I think was touched on in that uh, in the film Chronicles of Riddick, and that it's kind of what the, the <laughs> necromongers were doing, right? Uh, I don't think they were doing it with stars, but they, you know they had the whole kind of like life sucking undead. Uh, uh, you know, uh, Ravager kind of uh, thing going on. I mean, I never saw Chronicles. What? Oh, you've got to see it. I've seen Pitch Black at your recommendation. Oh, well, then that's the necessary precursor to Chronicles of Riddick. You should see it. Is it's, Keith David in it? Yes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's 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 fun. It's fun. But yeah, I'm picturing a a, a marauding um, uh, interstellar uh, civilization that just goes from one system to the next, uh, using up suns and then spitting them out again. But eventually, they're going to reach that point where there are no new suns to conquer. And Alexander wept. Yes. Or there were no worlds to conquer. Yeah. And then you're just left to uh, just stew in the uh, in the the cosmic darkness. Uh, so if we're going to keep expanding, we need stars. And if we run out of local stars, we're going to have to get them from somewhere else. And Hooper writes, quote, over the next approximately 100 billion years, so basically 20, 25 times the age of the Earth, Mm -hmm. he writes, all stars residing beyond the local group will fall beyond the cosmic horizon and become not only unobservable but entirely inaccessible. So he, he's saying like we're going to run out of time if, if you know, a civilization doesn't do something early on. It's going to run out of time to get at all those extra stars to give, the, to give them more energy. So you've got stars speeding away. How do you make use of them for the future? Hooper has an idea. What if you go out to those stars, you go snag them, and then you use the Dyson spheres that you build around them as a drive. We, we talked earlier about the idea of Shkadov thrusters and things like that. What if you used a Dyson sphere to steer and drive a star back home to where your civilization is so that you can hoard stars from the entire universe at large and keep them nearby to use them for the future before they go beyond your cosmic reach. I think we should call this starjacking. That's, that's what it sounds like to me. <laughs> it's star hoarding. Yes. And so the, the emitted radiation from a star could provide some thrust, which could be used, at least in theory, to steer a star and its Dyson sphere in a particular direction, uh, meaning that, you know, this civilization could gather stars close together and keep them from expanding out of reach and greatly extend the lifespan of their civilization. But there are limits on this, and a lot of Hooper's paper is used to calculate types of stars that would be fruitful for this. Only certain types of stars would work, mainly stars somewhat within the range of the mass of our sun, because stars that are much bigger 
tend to be older or tend to not have as much life left in them. Yeah, and you you don't want to go to the trouble of jacking those stars if they're just going to burn out or collapse before you can make use of them. Exactly. So this is a problem. The The bigger stars would not have enough life left in them to survive the journey back to the home base. And so they're not really worth hoarding. On the other hand, stars much smaller than our sun would not provide enough energy to drive the star to its central star hoard fast enough before it passed beyond the cosmic horizon. And so there is kind of a Goldilocks star, you know, a Goldilocks star that you want that, that is big enough to give you enough energy that's small enough that it's still going to have plenty of life left in it by the time you get it home. And that's the kind you want to bring home. Interestingly, Hooper points out that if alien civilizations anywhere out there are doing this, quote, this would not be a subtle activity. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So we should be able to detect it, kind of like the original idea of the Dyson Sphere. If anybody out there is doing anything like this, you've got a galactic civilization in one of those galaxies far out there, and it's making these kinds of preparations for the future, this could give us a new path to SETI observation. Can we look out at galaxies out there and detect the removal, transport, and hoarding of certain kinds of stars? Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. Like you say, this would not be a subtle act. This would be the kind of thing that we would conceivably be able to to observe. Yeah, and so Hooper writes, quote, such a civilization could appear as a region up to tens of megaparsecs in radius in which most or all of the stars lighter than about two solar masses are surrounded by Dyson spheres. Now, that's a cool image. Yes. (laughs) The star horde. The star horde. Yeah, the, the empire of the star hoarders or starjackers. Which whichever one, whichever one you want to use. Starjacking is the verb. The star horde is the noun. The starjackers work for the star hoarders. Yeah, yeah. And then our only hope is to just, I guess, somehow present a case that we're we're worth keeping around. Like we're culturally interesting enough. Uh, or maybe they have rules. Maybe they don't take stars from uh, systems with the inhabited worlds. I don't know. Could go virtually any way. Yeah. Maybe they only use stars from inhabited worlds. <laughs> Now, of course, with an idea this far out there, you you at least want to hear what some other scientists in the field have to say. Uh, Fortunately, there was a write-up of this in Science News that got some quotes from some other astrophysicists. Uh, For example, the theoretical astrophysicist Katie Mack of North Carolina State University, they asked her opinion and she pointed out that, you know, one thing is that you might have an easier time surviving if you just uproot your civilization and move it to a different galaxy cluster that's got a bunch of different stars you could use. So instead of bringing all the stars to you, you just go where there already are a whole bunch of already untapped stars. Uh, The Marauder model. Yeah. Yeah. And settle in there. Yeah. Uh, But then again, you know, maybe maybe there are reasons they want to stay where they are. It might be easier to send out autonomous star collection, you know, uh, robots that would build Dyson spheres around stars and bring them home than it would be to move the the conscious inhabitants of a place. Maybe they like where they are and, and the movement would be stressful. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, who's going to argue with them, right? Right. Because they would be – where would they be on the Kardashev scale? They would be between two and three. Perhaps they would be threes. I don't know. Three is pretty lofty. Oh, th- yeah, I think we're talking about a level three Kardashev yeah. civilization right here. You, you, you're you're controlling a galaxy if you're going out to other galaxies to get stars to bring home. Yeah, yeah. You would be, yeah. So I guess you would be a little beyond three. Yeah. You would be up towards, uh, you would be moving towards four, whatever four would be like if we can even comprehend such a thing. A mastery of, of the local group or something. Yeah. 
The physicist Avi Loeb of uh, Harvard University also points out the, the same issue that, you know, it might not be necessary to go get stars from other places because he says, quote, nature did it for us. You've already got – there are places in the universe where there are huge clusters of galaxies that are all sort of nearby each other and maybe it would be better to go to one of those galaxy clusters that's got lots of stars already there. I mean it's, it's a relative lots of stars because mm -hmm. there are lots of stars in our galaxy. But if you're talking about this Kardashev – you know, 3.5 or 4 type civilization and it's got ridiculous energy needs, then there are places you could go that would have more stars nearby already. Right. And again, this is assuming they don't say, you know, guys, this is a bit much. We don't need this much energy. Let's scale back a bit. <laughs> yeah, but then again, our tribal ancestors could have said that about our world today and now here we are and we need the energy. True. Though there, we do see, I mean, there obviously is a movement to cut back on energy to find more sustainable ways. Uh, and, you know, whether that will that argument will win out in the end, uh, you know, remains an, an open question. But um, well, I would say I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you can make the case to me. I don't know of any good reason that we need to cut back on energy itself. It's just like types of energy. You know, right. certain types of energy are more destructive than others. And if we had a truly, I mean, I think there is no such thing as a perfect energy source because. Even the most benign forms of energy, maybe solar or wind power or whatever, have, have some kinds of construction costs and right. stuff you like that. Right. You still have to but, build the panels. Et yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but there are relatively benign forms of energy that I don't – I don't know. Is there an argument that we shouldn't even be trying to maximize our collection of solar energy or something? No. I mean it, it kind of comes down to though to like well, how much energy can we conceivably – harvest mm -hmm. and then how are we living our lives in accordance uh, to it you know yeah um so i yeah i don't see anybody as saying let's stop harvesting energy but but also asking the question is our consumption lining up with our current and even near future ability to harvest it mm -hmm. maybe the answer to that is no right well yeah but but it's certainly based on our own model of of, of intelligent um technological behavior, it makes sense that uh, an alien species would just continue to jack as many stars as it as, as, as possible mm -hmm. to sustain itself. Uh, I mean, I, I like I was saying earlier, I think we want to avoid making too many assumptions about future civilizations or alien life because there's a lot we just can't know about their minds, about their right. culture and all that. But one thing we pretty much know no matter what is they need energy. Yes. But I'm saying they could scale back if they if they really wanted to. I mean, it's I, I I I think that is a possibility. Yeah, and certainly if they see the writing on the wall, you know that yeah. uh, that energy is going to become less abundant, and then it's about survival. Now, speaking of survival, um, I, I do have one last survival scheme to mention here, and this one was explored in that Adam Becker BBC article uh, that I referenced earlier. Alan Guth of MIT contends that the laws of physics might imply that it that this is possible, huh. uh, that you could essentially escape into a universe of your own making. Oh, yeah. Uh, now, it would require v vast amounts of energy, uh, which, of course, as we we're discussing, the, the players in this kind of game would have. Uh, but it might go down like this. First of all, you need to create an incredibly dense form of matter, so dense that it barely avoids collapsing into a black hole. Okay. And then you quickly clear the matter out of the way, forcing the region of space to start expanding. And this would jumpstart, in theory, a new universe. Quote, 
As the space in the region expanded, the boundary would shrink, creating a bubble of warped space where the inside was bigger than the outside. Which hmm. is kind of like, uh, it reminds me of the, the bag of holding from Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah. The Gooth actually compared it to the TARDIS oh, from Doctor yeah. Who. It looked, uh, looks bigger on the inside. Yeah, yeah. yeah. On, the, on the outside, it's what, a phone, phone booth? And then on uh. the inside, it's this large, expansive room and so forth. Uh, so eventually, the new universe would pinch off from the old, doomed universe. Uh, but he stresses that it, this might not be possible at all. Sure. It depends on a, a lot of assumptions that could be true, but mm-hmm. we don't know for sure. But then also the other way of looking at things, he says, is that, uh, you know, if if the multiverse model holds true, then that's probably our best bet. The universe may end, but the multiverse continues eternally. (laughs) No, wait. That might mean, though, we can't get there. Just some other version of us. Yeah. But that might be the best we can can hope for in the end is just to realize, all right. We've 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 jacked a thousand stars. We've hoarded them. We've done what we can. But hey, the writing's on the wall. We're gonna blink out. But somewhere out there in the multiverse, uh, this thing called life is still going. I believe in a thing called technological civilization. <laughs> one final note as a side tangent. Well, one thing I loved about uh, the uh, Freeman Dyson paper we talked about earlier from '79 is that at the end he he invokes Haldane's uh, quoting of of. G.K. Chesterton on the role of human intellect in the future of, uh, of, of civilization, quoting from uh, The Ballad of the White Horse by Chesterton where he writes, So rides my soul upon the sea that drinks the howling ships, though in black jest it bows and nods under the moons with silver rods. I know it is roaring at the gods waiting the last eclipse. Oh, that's nice. So may we find peaceful ways to survive that last eclipse. All right, so there you have it. Uh, if you want to hear more episodes like this dealing with the uh, the, the long-term future of, of humanity in this uh, universe of, of change and uh, hostility, uh, then you can check out all the episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. Uh, that's where you'll also find social media links to our Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, you name it. Huge thanks, as always, to our wonderful audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you want to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, or to suggest a topic for future episodes, or just to say hi, let us know where you listen from, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. And I want to close out here with a really cool track I came across from uh, the group We Plants Are Happy Plants titled An Incredible Pearl, which uh, makes use of a passage from American writer, philosopher, and ethnobotanist Terence McKenna, uh, who, we've, who we've discussed on the show in the past. Kind of a wizard figure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so check this out. If you want to hear more from We Plants or Happy Plants, just simply look them up on uh, Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your music. You can also go to youtube.com slash WPAHP. We're going to have to make a decision about human nature to wit, is this our home to be cherished and nurtured, an incredible pearl flung out in a universe of ashes and darkness? Or is this a hell world, a tiny confining prison at the edge of a dying universe from which it is our destiny to break free and recover our higher and hidden nature from which we have become separated? You know, this is a choice which, as a culture, we face. Are we to go into the divine imagination and create 
you know, starships the size of Manitoba that will fly between here and Andromeda and exist in a world of our complete syntactical self-expression? Or is man's place humbler than that? Is that grandiose, steeped with megalomania, touched with the kind of uh, political taint that's had this raping and pillaging ever since we got out of those miserable ice-bound villages in Jutland or wherever it was? Is it that? Or is it our challenge and our destiny? It's really a choice about human nature.